You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. A number of years ago, I was at a uh, college in the US and I was talking to a number of uh, uh, students that were, um, I guess, uh, 18 years and, and older. Some were first, second, some were third year Bible college. And they, this whole college uh, around summertime would encourage everybody to go off onto these different, different summer trips. It was a fairly conservative college, a little reformed, and I tucked those thoughts away as I was speaking to them. And, and as I looked across the audience, this was one of the preparation seminars before they you know, were engaged, maybe for the first time, maybe the second or third, but they were engaged in cross-cultural mission. And you could see on the different faces, some were sort of nervous and sitting there, you know, sort of arms crossed, closed body language. Oh dear, I don't know how I feel about all of this. And, and others were, you know how there are some people who can strut sitting down? Yeah. Some were kind of arm over the chair, <laughs> cowboy-like. And there was just a whole variety of different dispositions within the audience. And, and so I thought, oh, let, let me see if I can level this just a, just a little bit. And I, I was feeling a little cheeky. Um, and uh, I, so I just said, you, you know, uh, we're looking forward to this time, expecting great things. Hey, hand up if you have had the privilege of, of, of bringing somebody to salvation. And some of those who had just kind of had their arm over the back of the chair and so forth. And remember I said this was a reformed college. Yeah, I had the arm of the chair. They said, yeah, they're kind of, you know, the hand doesn't shoot up with confidence. The hand goes... Oh yeah, you know, and so a few of those hands up, you know, hands went up, and and then I said, that is phenomenal, because I had understood that's the Lord's work, and then the hands kind of waved down, and <laughs> you know, when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about this miracle of somebody coming to faith, it is not our work. That's the Lord's work. It is, it is truly a, a spiritual work. And, and as, we, as we explore this area to, together, I introduced it last week, I want to, well, I guess under the Lord's guidance, I want to help dispel fear about personal evangelism. I, I said last week, you know, there are capital E evangelists. You know, they, for them, this is, this is joy. This is delight. This just brings them so much so much. Uh, yeah, rejoicing in life. They, they love to share their faith. And there are small evangelists and, and, and probably in most congregations, that is, that is the majority of Christians. There is a little bit of fear, a little bit of trepidation in this, in this whole, here, a whole, whole area. So I'd love to dispel fear, but I'd also love to eliminate bravado because we must understand this about evangelism, the good news of the kingdom. It's warfare. It costs Jesus his life, and we should expect opposition. We're not going to do this by ourselves. And so if some of your efforts have felt like, you, you know, just striving up a very, very steep hill, and it's just been difficult and tough, and I feel like I've had very little success and so forth, yeah, that's what wars are like. That's exactly what war is like. And, and your, uh, your experience is spot on. It, it taps into the realities of the spiritual realm, which tell us that this whole area of evangelism, sharing the good news of the kingdom, this, this gospel message going forth, does so with un, unstoppable force 
but constant resistance. And you need to be aware of the constant resistance, but you need to understand it will go forward with power like an unstoppable force. That is how God's kingdom is expanding. So if we were to... Um, left my clicker down there. Having so much fun chatting before. Um, if we were to just break down this, you know, well, well, what is our part? What is God's part? How does this whole, whole thing work? Um, I'd put it down to these, these three things. Notice, listen, and share. We're going to explore, explore those. This week, we're going to look about the importance of noticing. Thus, uh, this is part one. Have you noticed? Uh, evangelism starts with, with noticing, noticing people. But, but then we want to talk about the important part also of listening. We'll look at Jesus as a model for this and, and then, of course, sharing. Well, that's the bit that many of us feel a little bit nervous about. But if we, if we get the first two parts correct then you know what, the, the, the rest will, will follow. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about noticing. Firstly, we need to understand the, the, the dynamic of, of evangelism and that evangelism is actually an aspect of discipleship. Um, when we think about discipleship, remember firstly that you're a disciple of Christ. As a Christian, um, you have Jesus Christ living within you. I think we may have said that once. But Christ in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the reality is, as you go out as an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation, as you go out in this, this capacity as an envoy of grace, as you, as you uh, practice personal evangelism, the thing is you don't, you don't do it by yourself. You don't... You don't do it as somebody who has, um, all right, thank you very much, Jesus. I'll be out. I'll come back and I'll report to you later. That's that's not the deal. Jesus is within you. And when we kind of have that sort of mental paradigm in our head, well, thank you very much. I'll be going now. It's lovely to have a quiet time with you. We should do this every morning. Goodbye. Jesus says, no, 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 wait on. I'm inside you. I mean, that's kind of the, 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 the deal we have to understand here is that Jesus is within us. He, we, we, carry around in us the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may also be, be evident through us. We carry around Jesus Christ with, within us. And so, so that's us as a Christian, a disciple, um, Matthew 4, 9, come follow me. A disciple is one who follows Christ. A discipleship, Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples, is taking others to the one that you're following. Okay, so just to, just to backtrack, there's Jesus in you as a disciple, we are committed. It's, it's not just, Jesus is in me. I'm happy. I'm going to sit down now for the rest of my life. No, it's Jesus is in you, and, and he invites you to join him on mission. And so we, we follow Jesus for the rest of our days, continually being, being sanctified, made more and more like him, going from glory to glory. It's an amazing thing. This is what Jesus does in our lives. So we are being made and shaped more and more like Jesus. And as that happens, as we follow him more and more, we have the opportunity to take others with us. And that happens sometimes in subtle ways. Sometimes that happens over a period of time, 10, 20, 30 years. I know some of you are still praying for loved ones and friends, and you have been doing so for decades. You haven't yet seen that result that you pray and hope for, but God's always at work. And his time's not always our time, so we just trust him with that. But this is this is the part of, of disciple. This is part of discipleship. Um, so, 
just speaking about evangelism a little bit, here's a couple of things we need to understand. I want you to just think for a moment, what's the greatest miracle if somebody was to say to you, tell me about this miracle-working Jesus. What miracles have you seen? What's the greatest, legitimate, testifiable miracle that you have ever seen? Everyone got one? Oh, Heather, you're not supposed to get it in one. The, the way this works is either it's a rhetorical question and I get to be brilliant in a moment and stun you, or alternatively, there's a couple of answers that are almost correct, not quite correct, I'll be gracious about it, and then I will stun you with the correct answer. <laughs> but all right, if you want to play it that way, what was it again? <laughs> The miracle of a changed heart. There we have it in one. All right. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> the greatest miracle that you have ever seen is the transformation of God at work in your life. We've all seen one. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have witnessed a phenomenal miracle. It's a spiritual work and it's miraculous. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. Satan can, can try and demonstrate his, his power from time to time, you know, woo, and that's cute. But it's nothing like the transformation of a heart turned to God. Nobody else can do that. Nobody can bring something from dead to life. Nobody can take something out of the darkness and illuminate it. Nobody can say, take something that is, that is held in bondage and captive to destruction and free it and liberate it like nothing. Nobody else can do that. But God, it is an utter, absolute miracle. And you witnessed it. How's that? It's phenomenal. You have been witnesses to one of the greatest miracles that can be performed on earth, the salvation of a person. And it's you. You get to testify to that. Um, but understanding evangelism and understanding what happens when, um, and this is, this is the, that whole realm of theology called soteriology, the study of how does somebody get saved? What, what is conversion anyway? But but we are witnesses to this incredible miracle of somebody being released from bondage. And, and maybe you remember what it's like. Sometimes it's, it's helpful, isn't it, to, to cast your mind back and to remind yourself of the joy of your salvation, what it is that God has done for you. It's a miracle. It's wonderful. And we're all witnesses of it. But it is a spiritual a spiritual work. Um, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It is a real work. It's a real thing. It's a, it can be a progression, but then it's a moment in time in which a, a, a switch is flicked, a light comes on, death is no more, life has come. It doesn't always, doesn't always feel like that. Not all of us have testimonies of, you know, uh, um, suddenly standing in there, there in the bathroom before the mirror and then etched in writing on the mirror is, you know, welcome home, son, or something. We don't all have that sort of necessarily supernatural external experience. Not all of us have moments of great feeling and weeping and so forth. 
it can, can be a gradual process, but nonetheless, it's a real thing. Something that's dead now lives. It's a birth. A new birth. It's a miracle. It's an amazing thing, and it can only happen because of the power of God that brings salvation to all those who believe. So firstly, we need to understand regarding evangelism, this is a spiritual work, and it is, it is indeed miraculous. Um, essentially, what has to happen is that a person's spirit, which without God is dead, there is no life to it, it needs awakening. It needs to be awakened. Um, in this regard, we think of 1 Corinthians 2.14, where, where Paul says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and they cannot understand them, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Our hearts and our minds need to be awakened to God. Um, therefore, as, as those who God is involving in this task, we need to be spiritually alert. We need to be switched on ourselves spiritually. And uh, um, perhaps Ephesians 5, 15 to 18 is a, is a reminder of this. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. We need to be wise in this matter. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Uh, let me just pause there. You're tempted to read on, aren't you? Some of you are still reading on. Let me just pause there. The days are evil. Did you realize that this is a beautiful day? The sun is shining. It's lovely. We have food on the table. We have petrol in our, our tanks. Actually, I think we do. Yes, we have petrol in our tanks. We have, we, we have the prospect of tomorrow. We have so much going for us, but today is evil. It is, it is ultimately dominated by evil. We need to understand that. We live in evil times, and it has been this way for a long time, but the days are evil. And sometimes we get a little bit confused and baffled, don't we? Baffled when things go wrong. But things go wrong because things aren't right. And things aren't right because there is evil in the world. You need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. Okay, we can read on now. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul here is using an analogy. Um, and by the way, I agree. Do not be drunk on wine. But he actually could have said, you know, um, because a person who is drunk on wine is controlled by that substance. Do not be controlled by anything. Do not be controlled by your anger. Do not be controlled by material things. Do not be controlled by alcohol. Do not be controlled by drugs. Don't be controlled by anything else except the Spirit of God. That's Paul's point here. I want you to be filled up and controlled with the Spirit of God. That's the way you have to live. Interestingly, here in Ephesians... Um, and I thought this was worth just touching on. Let me read a little bit, little bit more to you here. Because, because here is the church in Ephesus, and Paul is concerned about them. He's concerned that many of them have actually gotten carried away with the things of the world. Um, and, and so this is the context in which he says, be filled with the Spirit. Um, Paul says, you know, for you were once darkness, but now you are light. So here is, here is his reminder of what has happened in their lives, how they, they came to faith. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So, here's his exhortation, live as children of the light. So our behavior, our obedience is important. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 10, and find out what pleases the Lord. 
Isn't that a beautiful way of describing life's adventure? The adventure of finding out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is, this is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, Paul is talking here to Christians, but he's saying that this world has a way of lulling you to sleep. This world has a way of dimming you, spiritually speaking. This world has a way of, of blunting your sharpness, your acuity to spiritual things. It has a way of doing that. And so Paul is saying, you know, and you can almost imagine him, you know, giving a little bit of a, a pastoral loving shake. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Come on. Let Christ's light shine once more on you. Verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Here's, and we're now into the verse, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do not be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then going on, talking about, and this is going back to our little A, isn't it, all together. Um, here's the assumption that, um, that we will spur one another on, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is Paul commending to, her, commending to us um, that we need, if we are going to be useful to the Lord, if we're going to be ministers of reconciliation, if we strive, if we want to be involved in this evangelistic task, we need to be spiritually switched on. We need to be awake. We need to be awakened to the Lord and, and, and filled with His Spirit. This is a spiritual work. All right, what else? We need to understand um, the importance of being in the world, but not of it. Um, this, is a, this is a common phrase we, we use. It's actually not a scriptural verse, but it's a common phrase we use to describe this, this challenge that we have of, of actually being citizens of, of another world. We belong and our citizenship is in another, another kingdom. Um, but Jesus gives us an example here. In John 1.14, uh, we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So, so Jesus became flesh, and, and this is the world in which he lived and walked for that season of his, his life. And so he was in the world. And yet in John 17.14, he prays this prayer. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. So Jesus is declaring, I'm in the world, I've been in the world, but I am not of the world. In other words, I am in the world, this is my location. I am located in the world, but I'm not of the world, I'm not a product of the world, I'm not shaped by the world. Um, I recall in my very, very early days, young Christian in the police force, you know, sometimes you'd have a pretty tough week. They used to say that in four years you see, as a policeman, uh, what most people see over an entire lifetime. 
And sometimes it'd be a pretty tough week. And I remember being in church on a Sunday and, and just sometimes sitting there and just thinking, this is so out of touch with what is happening in the world. And uh, I, was, I was just, you know, I would, I would sit there in a little bit of a blue funk and I would kind of think, man, these people have no idea, no idea what's really going on. Now, I had to, I had to get a little bit of discipleship in this matter and I had to, you know, have uh, a little bit of God's grace permeate me and, and help me in those moments. But what I was reflecting was, because of my occupation, I was really in the world, I was really in the world, and I was seeing the worst of it. And sometimes in a given week, it was a really, it was a pretty bad week. And it was very difficult coming from that to that moment where we come together to worship God and consecrate ourselves and remind ourselves that we are different. I had to rediscover the blessing and the purpose of, of this particular gathering and, and that it is okay to have um, these moments where essentially we are we are fellowshipping and spurring one another on and praising God. And, and by the way, praising God is spiritual warfare. That is how we repel the devil and push him back. And, and it's important to have these times together so that we are prepared and equipped to then be commissioned to go out into the world. Those are distinct purposes. But I had to try and find that balance of being in the world but not of the world. Now, this is an interesting verse, an interesting that Jesus uses such strong language. I've given them your word. The world has hated them, and still does, by the way. But why? Have you ever asked yourself that in the, you know, the, in the midst of the fight and the battle that is life? Do you ever ask yourself, why does there seem to be such hatred? Why is it that everything seems to go except Christianity and, and, and the teachings of Jesus Christ? Why, why is it that there is such, such hate? Well, um, Jesus has given them his word. He gave his word to the disciples. His word, his teachings, is now embedded within them, even as Christ is within them, right? And the word is, is like a rock. It's like a solid foundation. You build your life on that. And, and the world and the culture around us is like a cookie cutter. And anything that is all doughy that you can cut out Fits. The cookie cutter works perfectly. It likes to conform, and it likes to make sure that we are all got the right shape. But cookie cutters don't go through rocks so well. It blunts the cookie cutter. And so we have this, this conflict. As, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the Word of God within us. It's like a rock. We live in a culture which which is like a cookie cutter, and it's trying to make everybody conform to its beliefs and its values. And cookie cutters just don't go through rock very well. There's the conflict. You've got somebody in some dark realm somewhere pushing a cookie cutter down on rock saying, I hate it, I hate it. And that's what Jesus is saying. I've given them your word, the world hates them. And by the way, the world here... We're talking about the systems of this world and the, the system which, which desires conformity to this world. It hates rock. You can't cut through it. And that's the word of God that is, that is in us. And Jesus is recognizing this reality. We are not of the world because of the word of God that is within us, even as I am not of this world as well. And yet we have this task. Frank Lorbach of... Um, I mentioned him last week, a quote of his, and, and, and uh, in my blog this, this week just mentioned a few, few more of his quotes in his life. 
He, he says this, it is as much our duty to live in the beauty of the presence of, of God on some mount of transfiguration until we become white with Christ as it is for us to go down where the needy people grope, gravel and groan and lift them to new life. We have this dual responsibility. We have the responsibility to be on the Mount of Transfiguration, just glorying in the Lord and being made white with Christ, as Frank says. But we also have a duty to go down from the mountain to where people grope, gravel and groan and, and help, by the grace of God, lift them to new life. We have this dual responsibility to be in the world, but, but not of it. So that's part of the task we face as well. And then lastly, it needs to be spirit-directed. We can often forget this with our systems and our plans and our formulas that, that make us feel a little bit more secure and, and courageous in this task. We can forget the simplicity of just being led by the Holy Spirit. In this regard, we might think of Galatians 5.25. Um, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That applies not only to all aspects of life, it applies to this task of evangelism as well. So there's, there's a, few, a few thoughts about evangelism. It's a spiritual work. It's miraculous. Essentially, a spirit needs to be awakened. We, therefore, need to be spiritually alert. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. And in this task, we need the Holy Spirit to direct us. Now, let's look, let's look at an example of this. How does this actually, actually work in, in practice? If you have your Bibles... Have a look at John chapter, John chapter 4. And we're just going to take a, take a few verses here and look at a couple of things along the theme of noticing people. Remember our little threefold steps was no, notice, listen, share. This is about noticing people. John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. We'll stop there. There's so much more to that story, but here's just a few verses just, just for today. Notice firstly in, in verse 4 there, um, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And um, this, is, this is interesting in a couple of aspects because, you know, for Jews, Samaria and Samaritans in particular, it just, it wasn't their pick of picks. This was not you know, this was not like uh, uh, driving through the Gold Coast, you know, yay, or Sunshine Coast, actually, it might be better. This was, this was not that. No, this was like going through, oh, we have to drive through that suburb to get where we have to get to. Jesus had to go through, through Samaria. You know, God loves to, to take the ordinary circumstances and use them for extraordinary purposes. 
You might look at your week and you might think that nothing spectacular is happening this week in my life. In fact, it's, it's all pretty ordinary. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. Jesus had to go through Samaria. But God was going to use that in an amazing fashion. Now, your week, as, as ordinary as it might look, is filled with opportunities that, that God wants to use. He loves to take the ordinary and use it for extraordinary purposes. It might just feel like a matter of course that I have to go this way or I have to go this way. I have to attend to such and such. But in the midst of that, God wants to, to use that. Notice in, then in verse 6, um, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was noon. So here we learn a little bit about the humanity of Jesus. He actually did get tired. He was tired. He wanted to sit down. And sometimes um, opportunities that, that the Heavenly Father um, uh, wants to use isn't always opportune to us. Sometimes we can be tired. Sometimes we can be frustrated. Sometimes we can be in a low moment. Sometimes we can, we can be in a blue funk or we just want to be left alone. There's all sorts, of, all sorts of moments in life where we might feel that we are not top of our game right now. And guess what? God loves to use those moments. He loves to use weakness. In fact, his strength is made perfect in weakness. So don't feel that there's a perfect time, a perfect occasion, and a, and a, and a perfect sort of uh, um, disposition that God, God is looking for in order to use you for his evangelistic purposes. Not at all. Not at all. He'll take weak any time. And that makes most of us qualified. I recall on a flight um, to some, some board meetings on one time, it was an international leg. I knew at least seven or eight hours of just a little bit of quiet. And I had my plan. You know, it was a midday flight. So first I thought, well, we'll be fed in the first few hours. But that takes a while to come out. So I had my little travel devotion and kind of I was looking forward to, to just having some, some time with my little travel devotion. And then I thought, oh, I might peruse the, the movies and, and watch a movie over dinner and, and then a little bit of sleep and, and so forth. Oh, I had my plan. And the amazing thing was that it was a, a lovely seat configuration. It was sort of a 242 and, and it was packed except for the seat next to me. It was perfect. It was ordained. It was meant to be. And what's more, everybody is sitting down. All the, you know, all the luggage is up in the, in the overhead lockers. They're all shut. It was that moment where, where I'm pretty sure, I'm right down the back of the plane, I'm pretty sure they've even shut the doors at the front. I'm set. It is cool. I got my plan. I got a seat next to me. I could just recline. This is perfect. Thank you, Lord. I feel so blessed. And then in the periphery of my vision, somebody's coming down the aisle. One last passenger. The plane was already late. How is this possible? How could anybody be late? I'm desperately looking around thinking there's got to be other seats. It can't be my one. And, and she must have seen the sheer panic on my face. Because this young girl sort of looks at me and, and she had a bit of pluck and she said, I'm really, really sorry. But that's my seat. <laughs> As he, no, 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 please, please. Well, Lord. <laughs> so she sits down and makes herself comfortable. And, and I kind of thought, well, she's kind of a, a young woman. 
it's inappropriate for me to talk anyway, so cool, I'm off the hook again. This is obviously not of the Lord and so forth. I can still stick to my plan. I've just got more limited space. And, um, and then I kind of got that conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, Stuart, you're not noticing something. And I was thinking, yes, I'm noticing that I shouldn't be noticing something. So I'm just in my, in my kind of realm here, and I'm very happy, Lord. And then the Lord wanted me to notice that this was an opportunity that he wanted to use. So I kind of thought, all right, one, one, opening, one opening line won't hurt. You know, kind of, um, you know, I'll throw that out and see what happens. So you um, traveling for, for business or holiday? And then the conversation started. And ends up, she worked for the, um, the federal police. Ah, oh, really? Connection. And uh, end, end up, she's, she's just, uh, just been married. Um, and uh, it's about the same, same age as my, my Nat and, and his new wife, Beck, who had just also recently been married. So, you know, oh, my son just got married and, and so forth. And... And anyway, the conversation station took, took off, and it was all warm and friendly and all about, you know, eh, the superficial matters, easy matters, and so forth. And, and, uh, and so we, we went all of that. She was stunned, absolutely stunned, that I would leave the police force to become a pastor. Um, and, uh, and that must have just, you know, I think was doing her head in a little bit because she was silent for a long time. About three movies, she was silent. And... Um, <laughs> And then towards the end of the flight, when we're all there waking us all up and so forth, and, and I'd been sort of just, well, spirit-led, just kind of not, not pushing and, and so forth, but spirit-led, but all, also, also open. And we're out towards the, the end. She said, so being a pastor, I guess you deal with death and stuff. And I said, yeah, yeah, my fair share. And she said, huh. Do you think people think about God more when they're dying? And I said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And then that led to, a, to another whole lengthy and, and profound discussion about things that she had never been forced to think about before. Gently, gently, spirit-led, but just a lovely conversation. That was my part. And that also, I think, is, is one of the things that we need to understand in this whole task is know your part. What is it that God wants you to do? What doesn't God want you to do? And, and it, was a, it was a fantastic conversation. I really, really ended up appreciating that. But it happened when I was tired. It was happened when I was in my space and I had my plan and my plans got interrupted. It happened as I was going somewhere, it just in the ordinary moments of life. And the same with Jesus too. God loves to use the ordinary for extraordinary purposes. And he loves to use us when we're tired, weak, and feel terribly, terribly, um, uh, if not unqualified, ill-equipped. That's when God loves to, loves to work. And then, and then we read that Jesus does something quite surprising. He also... Prompted by the Father, he realizes, now is, now is the moment. Now is my time. And he asks the question. He asks the woman, the unthinkable, will you give me a drink? Verse 7. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
um, quite literally, the, the, it's an, an idiom, the expression here is an idiom, it's, it's we would not eat off the same plate as you. That's, that's, that's the, if you had a shared plate in front of you, we wouldn't share that plate with you. This company is not the usual company that we feel comfortable with. And so, so the Samaritan woman is, is rightly surprised. Jesus here notices the unnoticed because they are yet to notice. He notices the unnoticed. And she was happy, probably, to be quite honest. She would have been very, very happy to just go unnoticed. She was, well, outcast is a strong word, but she is not somebody who would normally get the attention of a Jew. And yet Jesus says, you know, would you, would you get me a drink? And she's just thinking, whoa, you can't ask that. You're not supposed to notice me. I'm, I'm an unnoticeable person. And I'm very happy in, in my, my little, little sphere of being unnoticed here. In fact, I, I would hate you to kind of probe. You would find out things about me which, quite frankly, you don't want to know. No, let's just keep our distance. Let's respect the cultural norms. Let's just kind of keep it like that. I'm unnoticeable. You're not supposed to notice that. You're not supposed to notice me. But Jesus does, and he pushes in. I recall um, being on a, on a leader's camp when I was, I was just, a, just a young guy, Diamond Valley Baptist, and, and it was a youth leader's retreat, and we'd had this, this speaker, speaker come in. He was, he was new to me. I didn't know him at the time. Some of you may know him. His name was David Cummings. And he was, uh, he was fresh from overseas. Um, all I knew about him was that this was a coup. This was a real coup. Nobody gets David Cummings president of Wycliffe Bible Translators International, nobody gets him to come and speak at a youth camp. So that's all I knew. I was thinking, oh, wow, looking forward to, looking forward to hearing him. And, and it was a fantastic morning, and he spoke with passion and fire, and it was, it was great stuff. And, and then at morning tea time, you know, like, like a lot of time when you just hear a really good speaker, and you're inspired and so forth, and you kind of think, wow, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to just ask so many questions. He's just got my mind spinning with all sorts of information. So many questions. I'd love to, love to just get close to him and, and ask a little bit. And I was looking around for him in the break. And he was over at a table right at the back of the room, not by himself. But we've probably, if you had to ask me, who's the one person on this camp that doesn't really fit in? Who's the one person on this camp that probably feels a little bit unnoticed and a little bit like an outsider? He was with that person. And I remember just watching from, in terms of a leadership lesson, probably just watching and thinking, wow. You know, there's all of these, you know, charismatic kind of leaders around here and, and cool people to hang out with and stuff. But you're found the one person in such a short time, you're found the one person who doesn't quite fit in. You've grabbed them and you've peeled off and you've headed down to the back of the room and you are talking to them like they're the only person in the world. I don't remember what David spoke on that weekend, but I remember that. I remember that moment. He noticed and probably I'd say that of David, of getting you know, uh, uh, close to him over the years and learning from him, that it would be the one thing that I think I learned from him. Stuart, notice the unnoticeable. He just had a knack of doing that and treating them like they were the most important person in the world. Jesus notices the unnoticed. Why? Because they're yet to notice. 
He, he goes on when she, she sort of kind of says to Jesus, ah, you know, you don't want this conversation. You don't want to notice me. You don't want this. And Jesus remarks, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew essentially who I really am and what I could do for you, you'd be asking me for a drink. Now, there's lots going on, on here, and I don't want to, want to overly complicate it, but I just, just want to make the comment that it was because she was blind, it was because she couldn't see, it was because she didn't notice God in this moment that Jesus reaches out to her. People just don't notice. By and large, most of the world have a deep, unfelt spiritual need. They know something's wrong, they just don't know what's wrong. In those honest moments, they recognize that most of us live lives of quiet desperation. There are, there are things that are broken and wrong and twisted and so forth, but it's all such a tangled mess that most of the time we live a life of avoidance where we don't have to go there, we don't have to try and nut out what is it ultimately that isn't working in our life. And for most of the time... We fill our lives with work or relationships or with something else and don't have to probe that question. But nonetheless, it's there. It goes largely unnoticed. There is a deep, unfelt spiritual need in all of us. We need God. We have a God-shaped void within us. And only God can, can fill it. And Jesus knows that. She has not noticed. This is a God moment. God is here. And life can be very, very different if she pays attention. And Jesus knows that. And it's kind of one of those reasons why I think we need to, in our everyday life, when we meet people, we have to recognize, well, of course they're not showing any interest in spiritual things yet. Of course, because they're not built to notice God. Remember, they're spiritually, they haven't been awakened yet. They're not capable of it. This, this capacity to recognize God in a given moment, it's not there for them. They can't notice. There are blinkers on their eyes. They can't hear the noise of the world and everything else. It blinds them. But we know that. We notice the fact that they can't notice spiritual things. So they need help. They need assistance. We know that God is in that moment, but they don't yet. All the more reason why we should notice them. All the more reason why they should, should gain our attention. But who? I often say we need to notice people in our family and our friends. We need to notice our neighbors, our, our workmates. And, and yeah, it's just sometimes people we just meet randomly. Um, they're the sort of people we need to notice. Um, the question comes up, how do we know when it's one of those moments? How do we know God is in that moment and we're supposed to be noticing? And who should we notice? It's essentially the same question as, who is our neighbor? Luke chapter, Luke chapter 10, 
We're told to love the Lord our God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. But who is our neighbor? Who are we responsible to, to love? It's very interesting in this story. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. And the Pharisee is basically asking, well, who is our neighbor anyway? And, and Jesus tells a story, and there's a beautiful twist in this. But, but it's the story of, of a guy heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets mugged along the way, beaten, stripped of his clothing, and left half for dead. A priest walks by, ignores him. A Levite walks by, ignores him. And then a Samaritan, despised by the Jews, he walks by, notices him, he physically, personally attends to the wounds. He bandages him up. He takes him to an inn. He spends two days' wages on, on, on just accommodating him and so forth and, and basically acts mercifully towards him. And then Jesus says, will you tell me who, who acted like his neighbor? And listening to the parable and understanding it correctly, he says, well, the one who acted with mercy, that, that, would, be, that would be the neighbor. And Jesus says, you've answered well. Well done. You spot on. But here's the twist. The question is asked, who is my neighbor? And it's, and it's kind of the, the direction of the question is from me to them. What are they to me? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What, what are they to me? And Jesus turns that around and says, who are you to them? That's how you answer that question. Not what are they to me, but who are you to them? We might look around the world and kind of think about, well, which need? What, what needs am I supposed to, supposed to attend to? What moments am I supposed to notice? You know, who are they to me? Which one is my neighbor? And Jesus turns that around beautifully and he says, I want you to think differently about this question. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of another person. I want you to pretend that, that you're that person who's beaten and stripped and and left half dead. And you're watching as people pass by. And then suddenly, the most surprising person in your life, the person that you would have figured would have no time for you whatsoever, suddenly ministers to your needs. They notice you. And they show you mercy. If you put yourself in that person's shoes, who do you think is their neighbor? The one who acts mercifully towards us. Yes, absolutely. So who are you supposed to notice this week? Who are we supposed to notice in our evangelistic efforts? We're supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of others. To understand their situation. And to think, who could we be to them? Do they need a neighbor right now? Do they need a little bit of neighborly love? Do they need somebody to reach out to them and be that good Samaritan? That's the moment to notice. That's what we are to, to understand. Well, that's all, for, that's all for today. Notice, listen, share. We'll get to, to listen and, and share um, next week. But this week, I would love us all to notice others. Oh, we've got a busy week coming up, yeah? And in the midst of that, there is somebody that God wants you to notice. Who could you be for them? Who could you be for them? Let's pray.
I want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word this morning. And I pray that um, as we go through this next week, you would help us to lay aside our agendas, to take our program or our schedule, whatever it looks like this week, and to surrender it to you and to allow you to help us notice the unnoticeable. That will take spirit eyes to do. Would you help us in this? When you ready a heart for salvation, there's no stopping what you're going to do. And we would like to be a part of that. This is your power unto salvation. It's not hard work. We just have to notice. Would you help us to have eyes to see where you are at work, eyes to see what you are doing, eyes to see who are the needy in our sphere of influence? Would you help us to have the words to speak and the courage filled with your spirit to reach out to others? And I pray, Heavenly Father, that that would not be the case just this week, to those who are in the world and do not yet know you. But I pray that that might even be something we get to practice right now after the service to one another. This can be our prac time. This can be that time where we reach out to each other with the love of Jesus Christ and just bless so, Father, would you use our fellowship after the service as an opportunity to put into practice everything that you want to show us throughout this week? We ask this in your name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.